27, excerpt from Moving Beyond Critique. Mimi Kim. In the summer of 2006, a drumming teacher from South Korea was invited to teach a week-long intensive drumming workshop at a Korean cultural community center in Oakland, California. 43 He was a teacher within a well-respected tradition of drumming associated with village life and radical anti-state politics in Korea. Trusted ties with this Korean institution had been woven through Korean-American pilgrimages to the Korean village home and invitations to teachers to visit various drum groups throughout the United States. After an evening of singing, storytelling, and drinking, the usual festivities accompanying a full day of intensive drumming instruction, several students stayed the night to rest and recover for the next day. For over two decades, the cultural center had developed a safe, multi-gender, and intergenerational space and haven for the teaching of Korean drumming and dance, community performance, and ongoing cultural and political exchange between the home country and the diaspora. That night, this safety was shattered when the drumming teacher sexually assaulted one of his students. The violation was immediately communicated throughout the small building, and center leaders quickly pulled together a direct confrontation involving the members and their community-led board. The next day, members gathered at the center to denounce the violation and support the victim of violence. In this situation, the victim steadfastly refused to name herself as a survivor, finding the former term a closer match to her experience of sexual violence. Liz, the president of the Oakland Cultural Center at the time of the assault, recollects the next day's encounter. When we got there, the teacher got on his knees and knelt in front of us, which is the deepest sign of respect. And then he asked us, begged us, not to tell his organization back home. We said we couldn't do that. We're not here for your apology. We're here to tell you what happened, what we're going to do, and that's it. He made a big sign of remorse, taking his drumming stick and breaking it. He put it on the ground like I'll give up drumming for this. Most of us were disgusted. What followed was a set of sexual assault awareness workshops for center members and members of other affiliated drumming groups. An immediate telephone call to the head of the Korean Drumming Institution elicited the leader's profound shock and unconditional apology. Then a letter with a list of demands was sent. The Oakland organization demanded that the Korean institution establish sexual assault awareness trainings for its entire membership, which ranged from college students to elder farmers in the village, and commit to sending at least one woman teacher in future exchanges to the United States. They requested that the teacher who had committed the assault step down from his leadership position for an initial period of six months and attend feminist therapy sessions that directly addressed the assault. The traditional relationship of deference to esteemed teachers and the teaching institution shifted as the Oakland organization challenged the familiar practice of sexual harassment and violation. The organization also contacted a sister progressive drumming group in Seoul. The group in Seoul had dealt with sexual assault in a manner that reflected its deeply democratic values. Its 100 members were collectively organized to address a sexual assault that had occurred among the membership. The person who had committed the violation went through an extensive process with the group's leaders and members. After leaving the organization, he posted a public apology on its website and retained relationships with drumming group members. Inspired by this story of collective action and its concrete results, the Oakland organization implemented measures that reversed the usual silence and victim blaming that accompany sexual assault. The annual October festival was dedicated to the theme of healing from sexual violence. Facts regarding the incident were published in the program and shared as a part of the evening's festival. This was not intended as a shaming act, although the teacher may have been shamed by it. Rather, 
it was a challenge to the community to take collective responsibility for ending the conditions that perpetuate violence, including collusion through silence. This story reveals painful lessons about community violence and the limitations of our community-led processes. The Korean Cultural Center came together with a unified response to violence, but grew divided as the process continued. During the drawn-out period of institutional reflection and engagement, the energy and spirit of the organization, as well as the friendships that had held it together, were sapped. The victim never returned. Korean-American visitors who participated in drumming events in South Korea viewed the continued presence of the teacher with resentment and suspicion. His eventual removal from the institution did not necessarily lead to the sense of justice that people desired. Liz, the center's president, reflected further on this set of events and on the uncertainties accompanying the process of community accountability. Some people asked us later why we didn't call the police. It was not even a thought in anybody's mind. I know that a couple of folks, her close friends, tried to break in, to kick his ass, but they couldn't find him. Luckily they didn't. Luckily for him and the organization, too, because I think if they had, it, would have been a, mess. Well, I don't want to say luckily because the victim even felt at some point, maybe we should have just kicked his ass. Now, I feel like I've got nothing. I don't have the police report. We didn't throw him into jail. We didn't do nothing. We talked to her and said, we didn't move forward on anything without your consent. We asked, what else can we offer you? We offered her to go to counseling and therapy. We offered her whatever we could do at the time. In retrospect, I wish we could have spent more time to just embrace her and bring her in closer. This story explores the role of force and violence, as well as our response to violence. Despair over a long and complex process of accountability spurred discussions among the members of the Oakland organization about the potential benefits of violent retribution. Liz reflected on a member's insightful remark as they pondered the expedience of violence, that's what the teacher wanted. He wanted that. When he was making that apology, he wasn't necessarily saying beat me up. But he was saying, do anything you want to me, I deserve it. That way, once you do, he can walk away and say, okay, now I'm done, wipe my hands and walk away. They've done everything they can already. Some may fear a violent response most, but some could also welcome a quick but dramatically symbolic payback. Kicking ass, a familiar symbol of community rage, can also be a substitute for a process of repair and change. Creative Interventions Moving Beyond Critique While this story was unfolding, Creative Interventions, CL, was already underway. Inspired by a social movement that challenged gender-based violence, and that had been infused with new life at the historic 2000 Color of Violence Conference in Santa Cruz and the 1998 Critical Resistance Conference in Berkeley, many of us fashioned a critique of institutional responses to violence and then moved beyond it to establish new institutional spaces for creating and promoting community-based responses to interpersonal violence. These conferences critiqued the network of remedies to domestic violence and sexual assault. Made up of crisis lines, counseling centers, legal advocacy programs, and a system of criminal legal responses to gender-based violence, it took an individualized, social service approach toward survivor support and a policing response to people who perpetrate violence. The establishment of creative interventions in 2004 was driven as much by disappointment in the failure of progressive communities to challenge violence within our own networks as by the positive mandates of a newly energized anti-violence movement. 
to populate the void of alternatives with more thoughtful and pragmatic models, tools, and examples of what might constitute community-based responses to violence, C organized its activities around projects that aimed to build knowledge and practices in what appeared to be a vast unknown. Rediscovering Community Accountability Through Story Telling C hoped to fill that void through two projects. Liz's story of sexual violence in the Korean community was collected and shared through the Storytelling and Organizing Project, STOP, or what was originally known as the National Story Collecting Project.44 This project collects and documents community accountability stories, presenting them as alternative sources of knowledge to inform communities about what people did, how they carried out interventions, and the lessons they provided. The process of story collection, documentation, and listening is also a vehicle for organizing communities to generate action and stories that build upon each other and strengthen their capacity to challenge interpersonal and state violence. Liz's story inspired others to imagine what a community effort could look like and showed that communities could overcome traditions of silent acceptance of gender-based violence, form a public response, and demand institutional change. This story, and many others published by STOP, clarified promises and quandaries that would later characterize C's on the ground efforts to develop a model and tools capable of supporting community-based interventions to violence through its pilot project, the Community-Based Interventions Project. This story inspired others to move beyond rhetoric. Communities could transcend silent acceptance, build on connections across diaspora to offer solidarity, and learn from the concrete lessons of other organizations. This is one story among many that fueled the second project of C. Reconstructing Community Accountability Practices The Community-Based Interventions Project is a pilot study that set out to develop a model and set of tools to be used by family, friends, co-workers, and community members to intervene in interpersonal violence.45 Although it focused on gender-based violence, including domestic violence and sexual assault, the application was germane to other forms of interpersonal violence. C and four other primarily immigrant-based domestic violence and sexual assault programs in the San Francisco Bay Area designed it as a collaborative project. 46 intervention team members met regarding 23 situations of violence and worked directly with over 100 people engaged in violence intervention. The team was made up of seven regular members and one additional evaluator who was a longtime anti-violence advocate committed to progressive politics. All members are people of color. Unlike many conventional violence intervention teams, this group consists of people with extensive experience with survivors of gender-based violence and others who were working with people doing harm, two of them had done harm themselves. It was critical for an organization established by people who identified with survivors to include others who had substantial experience with and commitment to working with those who had done harm. The project valued and openly discussed the inclusion of intervention team members who identified as having done harm and were actively practicing accountability through their personal and work lives. This mix of experience and orientations contributed to the creation of a multidimensional approach to violence intervention that was committed to holism the consideration of multiple perspectives, including those of survivors, community allies, and people doing harm, in the process. The Constraints of the 501c, 3 the tensions between the nonprofit organizational form and a project promoting non-reliance on professionalized institutions led to innovations and contradictions. During the pilot period and beyond, community members and organizational partners viewed C as an institution with expertise. As people in crisis turned to C for support, the personnel who developed the facilitated model inevitably played an active, central role in interventions as facilitators. 
since the model and tools never became available in an external form to supplement the questions developed by intervention teams, we were never able to fully test the viability of the approach outside C. As an intervention team, we regularly questioned whether our role could be replicated outside our organization. Could a person who is simply a particularly skilled and sensitive member of one's own family, friendship network, or community assume the position of facilitator, supported by a C toolkit and other resources? Was the toolkit sufficiently accessible and informative to lead to successful interventions on the scale we intended? Would facilitators need additional orientations, training, and ongoing support? If so, how could this be provided without the existence of C or a similar institution? And how could we offer lessons and guidance without reproducing the errors of prescription and continued reliance on professionalized experts? The problem of sustainability. Many people came to see after their own interventions had faltered. Burnout was a common problem for groups that after many hours and mounting disagreements appeared to have accomplished little. Perhaps a more fully developed model and tools could have prevented that result or generated a sufficient degree of success. Groups lacking full unity concerning goals and bottom lines tended to blame each other because of differing and unstated assumptions regarding what was to be done and how it was to be done. People often felt compelled to follow the lead of the survivor. Survivors, however, were reluctant at times to assume the burden of this role, while others sensed they had insufficient information about the details of violence to make appropriate decisions. Fear of disappointing or betraying a survivor could lead to group paralysis. Sometimes groups that had been organized by a survivor of violence came to differ with that person's wishes or became frustrated by changes the survivor underwent during a course of action. For survivors still actively engaged with those who had caused them harm, emotions could be confusing as they experienced fear, guilt, and anger. Consequently, anti-violence interventions could produce unstable results and even disintegrate. Engaging the person doing harm Relationships with the person doing harm and that person's willingness to engage in an intervention varied greatly. Some survivors did want to confront that person directly. But this model relies on leveraging relationships and community connections as a context for change for the person doing harm. C therefore endeavored not to make the survivor solely responsible for changing the person who had caused harm, nor to individualize the burden and threat to safety. Beyond the limited options available in the community, C did not offer substantial support to change people doing harm. Adequate resources for engaging the person doing harm were thus difficult to marshal. Collective members who were willing to intervene with a person doing harm faced a number of challenges. Awkwardness with friends emerged as relationships of support or shared interests were overtaken by what could feel like the burdens of violence intervention. Sometimes, those supporting the person doing harm developed a growing sympathy as they witnessed the distress accompanying an intervention or heard their side of the story. Other friendships or alliances became strained, for they did not wish to remain engaged with a person who had committed harm or to be associated with someone who was publicly known as having done harm. This was rooted in their disappointment with that person and the desire to distance themselves from the responsibilities of intervention. Such engagement with the person doing harm, in C's experience, never led to violence or serious acts of retaliation. But that certainly could happen. A person doing harm with access to more resources than the survivor, including popularity or standing in the community, could gain considerable sympathy as compared to the survivor of violence. Many people involved with C explored various ways in which they and their allies could approach the person doing harm. Often, however, they declined. Fear, lack of adequate leverage with the person doing harm, 
and the absence of the planning and strategizing needed to sustain a long-term engagement prevented many people from pursuing these options. Those who did become engaged were banned from community events and received requests for public apologies, along with expectations that disclosure of past harms would be broadcast for interminable periods. Indeed, the terms under which the slippery notion of accountability would be satisfied remain an open question. Exploring all options, engaging all stakeholders. During the pilot period, C did provide an alternative space for violence intervention. Some participants disclosed during evaluation interviews that they were satisfied to find an option that was not otherwise available. For survivors of violence, it offered a space to fully consider a range of options that neither condemned nor questioned their desire to remain in relationships with people who had harmed them. It also encouraged them to bring allies into a supportive space, which cannot be underestimated. For others, the ability to explore and work through goals that might include fantasies of retribution or redemption helped to distinguish realistic objectives from hopes. Indeed, this exercise proved to be an important step in goal setting. C's approach differed from the way in which intervention team members with considerable experience had previously led sessions in conventional antiviolence settings. Ambivalence over intimate relationships that were also harmful was held within the space and entered into different goals and strategies. This also provided a rare space for allies to fully explore the impact of violence on their lives, to identify appropriate roles in confronting violence, and to break the sense of isolation as they recruited others to play active roles. Allies could express their ambivalence and mixed loyalties toward the survivor and the person doing harm, and move toward greater clarity. When groups working on interventions experienced tensions among themselves, a facilitated space made it possible to name and resolve those tensions. Disagreements among allies leading to breakdowns in the intervention were not uncommon. Mediation was necessary in these cases, and it also took place between survivors and allies to reduce tensions and conflicts. The C model, however, did not mediate between survivors and the person or people doing harm. C's approach was consistent with other critiques of the role of mediation in violence interventions, such as that of some restorative justice models. As such, mediation assumes an equal level of power among parties and is not used whenever there is risk of retaliation or some other form of harm if the process goes awry. 47 An exchange of information during mediation could potentially be used to inflict further harm on the survivor. Thus, C accepted the conventional dichotomous view of the survivor and the person doing harm as a caution against the use of mediation. Among those in pilot interventions were people involved in various intimate relationships, heterosexual, same gender, and gender nonconforming. Some came from situations of family or community violence. In C's experience, violence within heterosexual relationships followed the pattern of a male inflicting harm on a female survivor. Within C intervention teams, tensions arose regarding the centrality and expression of gender analysis during an intervention. I normally assumed a gender binary and embraced the doctrine of believing the victim, particularly when that person was a woman within a heterosexual dynamic of violence. My inability to suspend these assumptions revealed my own internal challenges, as well as those within the intervention team. Should we fundamentally question rather than assume the ways in which gender will play out in a dynamic of violence? Questioning the validity of this form of gender analysis, among other concerns, created discomfort. Some C facilitators considered analysis to be less important to their role than helping participants explore their own perceptions about the dynamics of violence and intervention. In this pilot project, the organization's personnel, 
rather than people more organically linked to a community, occupied the role of facilitator. This exacerbated dilemmas regarding how gender analysis, or any other analysis of power based on race, class, sexuality, age, ability-slash-disability, or immigrant status, applied to the intervention. At times, see interventions involved people with whom we share community. Our own personal situations of violence were brought to the team to facilitate our own interventions. These situations were personally useful and tested the validity of the model. They answered the underlying question driving the seed project of whether the model would be a helpful alternative in our own lives. Thus, the model and tools derived from our personal experiences. The gender binary and the victim-perpetrator dichotomy. Accepting a gender binary or even a conventional dichotomy between the survivor and the person doing harm did not preclude us from understanding and supporting processes that had the potential to challenge survivors, particularly as they concerned allies involved in violence intervention. The intervention team discussed the possibility of creating more opportunities to challenge survivors to articulate how they may have contributed to the dynamics of violence within their relationships. We sought to understand how people could be challenged regarding the ways in which they carry out an intervention. Of course, creating such opportunities can easily cross the line into victim blaming or become a dangerous distraction from the process of accountability. Indeed, these dynamics are disturbingly common. C was not particularly successful in proposing constructive ways to challenge survivors. The resulting model and tools build in more opportunities for identifying and negotiating difference and for increasing trust within the group. They should guide interventions that are aligned with more liberatory values and principles, thereby reducing the possibility that the intervention itself might produce further harm. In C's approach, the person doing harm might initiate an intervention or eventually join one as a partner, as opposed to merely being its target. During the pilot period, this idealized vision was rarely achieved. Indeed, internal struggles constrained our advances and limited our capacity regarding the extent to which C would work directly with these individuals. Some members of C, faced with an internal plan specifically geared to establishing a group for people doing harm, raised objections since it could clash with the widespread, community-based interventions we envisioned. A separate component for people doing harm was thought to violate our principle of holism because it would artificially focus on people doing harm rather than provide a more integrated model of change. C was split over these issues. Given the inability to reach a consensus on this aspect of the project, it was never carried out. By the end of the pilot period, therefore, we did not gain adequate information to assess how a community-based model could shift the people doing harm from being targets of intervention to being partners. Unpacking the Accountability Process C's experiences offer a better understanding of how variations in relationships within which violence occurs and differences in desired outcomes can lead to better-defined intervention strategies. Clarifying whether violence occurred in close and intimate relationships, among acquaintances, or among strangers can help to determine what leverage toward change is available in the community. A better articulation of goals is possible if it is known whether desired outcomes include hopes for ongoing closeness or intimacy, coexistence within overlapping community spaces, or complete separation. Finally, C envisioned accountability as a series of steps or stages that could help to guide goals and next steps. These markers are useful even if they are not ultimately reached. Since we always anticipate resistance to challenges to violence, particularly from the person or people doing harm, accountability is best considered as a process of change. No matter how open those doing harm might be when first confronted with demands for change, 
resistance soon follows. Understanding the commonality of this dynamic flowed from our own reactions when being confronted about our harmful attitudes and actions. The usual tactics of denial, minimization, and blaming others, including a focus on perceived injustices in the act of intervention, seemed likely. How can community processes embrace resistance as part of an intervention rather than as evidence of failure? The legitimacy of authority, force, coercion, and violence. Fundamental to a process of accountability is the reduction of violence or threats of retaliation to the point that deeper levels of change can be considered. Given that some form of confrontation and a tendency to resist change are inevitable in situations of accountability, C had to contend with questions regarding the ethics and efficacy of community-based authority, force, coercion, and even violence or the threat of violence. Members of the anti-violence movement understandably had a weak grasp of the violent dimension of power, but were open to grappling with its complexities. C's open stance on the issue was indicated by its self-description as an anti-oppression, rather than explicitly anti-violence, organization. There was keen interest in stop project stories for what they could impart regarding the use of force or violence in community accountability. We set a low threshold for authority, force, and coercion. Those undertaking community accountability processes often claim to disavow these forms of power, but exercise them nonetheless. Asserting righteousness or the moral high ground often obscured the fact that some level of force was being used. Elements of coercion reside even in requests for someone to listen to our account of violence, come to a meeting, or read a list of demands, no matter how gently or civilly they are made. Transparency over the assertive use of power and the potential consequences of noncompliance were important first steps in articulating principles and practices regarding their legitimate use. We also challenged a problematic position within the conventional anti-violence movement that tends to value and profess non-hierarchical or non-authoritarian structures of power, survivor-centeredness as a reversal of survivor disempowerment and victimization, and non-violent tactics. Yet authoritarian relationships are often embedded within the rules, regulations, and decision-making structures of anti-violence institutions, survivor-centeredness is often trumped by the assumptions and narrow array of options offered by the anti-violence advocate, and a disavowal of violence ultimately cedes it to the criminal justice system, which the movement upholds by relying on criminal legal remedies. By shifting the site of intervention from the criminal justice system and conventional anti-violence institutions back to community spaces, see turn to reclaiming authority within these locations. Community resources can include newly mobilized sites of authority among those formerly denied access to power. A group of women friends, for example, can decide to organize on behalf of an abused peer. Community-based interventions also rely on traditional authorities such as patriarchal leaders, from fathers, uncles, and clergy to community elders. Although it was preferable to mobilize formerly marginalized sites of authority, it was often practical and effective to rely on pre-existing forms of authority. Ultimately, these community resources, especially active participants in education or prevention campaigns, or in direct interventions against violence, offer an alternative to conventional anti-violence remedies. Finally, the use of force, coercion, or violence as part of the accountability process became an open question. Deception is also closely aligned with these tactics. Stop stories provided examples of how these tactics were actively used in community-based interventions to violence. A liberatory process, however, questions the legitimacy of subterfuge and force. Institutional concerns also existed. 
As the opening story suggests, organizations like C may consider liability, public reputation, and organizational sustainability when formulating tactics that may establish an institutional precedent that promotes violence and could easily lead to civil or criminal charges. Informal community formations may tend to threaten or actually resort to violence. Ethical concerns and risks did not escape these locations of intervention, but their operations tended to be less public. Some participants sought assistance to prevent friends or family from engaging in violent retaliation, for that course of action could lead to their arrest. They sought community accountability strategies that would avoid further violence and the possible involvement of law enforcement. C's community accountability practices relied less on coercion and punishment and more on compassionate engagement. Our liberatory community accountability process sought to mobilize all parties, including the person doing harm, with the view that such processes served their interests. Instead of appealing to a fear of consequences, community accountability appeals to higher values and aligns self-interest with the collective good. In C's limited experience, liberatory goals were required to guide the process, since pragmatism could lead to the use of coercion or threatened or real violence as temporary measures for assuring the stability and safety needed to make further steps possible. However, the pervasiveness of punishment as a model for accountability and the association of the term accountability with retribution contributed to difficulties in moving beyond this mode of engagement. Thus, a practice such as banning, which makes a modicum of safety possible while mobilizing for a more engaged process, can become an end rather than a means. Even the unintended assumption of a criminalization paradigm can cause those doing harm and those protecting them to resist the process. Banning, even for temporary safety, may be resisted. In response, those initiating an accountability process may strengthen their resolve to make enforcement of a ban the goal rather than one measure within a more engaged process. Public disclosure and navigation beyond shame and punishment. Another aspect of community accountability is its collective public nature. Participants in conventional anti-violence remedies regularly disclose information to staff or others working within the anti-violence institution, but strict protocols regarding confidentiality beyond organizational walls reinforce public silence. C's organizational interests unwittingly led to a somewhat contradictory position toward public disclosure. Its STOP project promoted public openness regarding violence and violence intervention. During the formative stages of STOP, we developed a protocol to balance safety and privacy considerations with the public's need to be informed. In its community-based interventions project, C protected confidentiality while encouraging thoughtful public disclosure on the part of participants. Perhaps impeding the disclosure process was C's institutional position as an interventions facilitator, rather than an organic participant. C's liberatory stance concerning public disclosure was complicated by the fact that violence in the community context remains associated with shame. Disclosure can assume the form of gossip, and public information can reveal large, misleading gaps as those involved in the violence tire of sharing details. Survivors and those doing harm can easily confuse disclosure with punishment in communities that view interpersonal violence through the lens of denial and shame. Communities contending with pervasive violence may resort to a process of public disclosure to curb it. For people doing harm, it can help to compel compliance with processes of accountability. Survivors in communities often expect people doing harm to engage in public disclosure as part of the process of being accountable. Yet how much to disclose, for how long, and to whom were questions not easily answered. Creating Conditions to Support Community Accountability 
Community accountability rests on a shaky foundation if it fails to support compassionate and collective responses to violence and if it associates accountability with a logic of criminalization. The principles of community accountability, community-based responses, and transformative justice can quickly slide into paralysis, collusion, or vengeance as the conditions for healthy, functioning communities weaken under the stresses of daily living and the systemic strains of neoliberalism, with its multiple forms of violence. Thus, the small and large successes of new social movement forces in articulating guiding principles, viable processes, and practices leading to lasting outcomes may interrupt violence and create the conditions necessary for strengthening liberatory community spaces. Where do we go from here? C's efforts are part of a larger social movement project to challenge the persistence of heteropatriarchy and white supremacy in our communities and to displace the criminalization paradigm that emerged in response to interpersonal violence over the last 40 years. The community-based approach to violence intervention, more familiarly known as community accountability or transformative justice, looks forward and backward to the institutions of the family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, and community. Hence, the reimagining and reconstruction of community accountability practices have required the excavation and reclamation of community traditions, as well as profound transformations in our assumptions about the roots of, and remedies to, violence. Abundant perils and paradoxes stand in the way of recentering community spaces that have been fragmented by individualism and competition, organized through persistently unequal power relations, and increasingly plagued by the material realities of poverty, surveillance, and pervasive violence. Thus, side by side with stories of successful community-based interventions to various forms of violence we find ample illustrations of challenges, limitations, and newly unfolding contradictions. Efforts to document these complex dimensions of community accountability late in C's institutional life cycle, but at an early stage in the social movement's formation, were intended to strengthen political analysis and practice. Yet public exposure can amplify the multiple threats to the social movement project. C experienced external pressures that affect other 501c, 3, organizations in today's environment. They are pressured to commodify concepts and practices, to adapt to funder-driven appeals to create institutionally identified or trademarked approaches and best practices, and to incorporate their efforts into the state institutions they have been resisting. These inescapable conditions of institutional survival increase with each success, as well as with efforts to stave off failure. C's deliberate strategy was to begin with a limited institutional life cycle. It sought to gain sufficient resources to create and publicly disseminate a rudimentary set of models and tools while minimizing pressures to compromise these goals to attain institutional sustainability. Beyond the threat of incorporation and Cope de Sion was that of the rapid devaluation and disappearance of our concepts, technologies, and institutions. Community accountability and transformative justice may serve the interests of grassroots, marginalized communities, so long as states do not gain the power to control and determine their content. The subtler violence of competition in the marketplace of innovation is equally threatening to our social movement sustainability. The act of publishing can hone analysis and disseminate knowledge across social movements and among important allies. It can also contribute to obsolescence. The market's thirst for quickly consumable information can move from public knowledge to stories of accomplishments, or even to postmortems on the failures of utopian visions. Efforts to identify limitations can unwittingly fuel skepticism and demoralization in a social movement project that is facing considerable odds. 
Given the ambitiousness of our collective projects and the infinitesimal resources fueling them, the pervasiveness of our efforts and doggedness in their pursuit cannot be underestimated. Lest these stories become lost archaeological remnants rather than the foundation for new and lasting structures, our radical work is to embody these lessons in daily practice and to push for greater collective impact. 43 Excerpted from Mimi E. Kim, Community Accountability, Emerging Movements to Transform Violent Social Justice Volume 37, No. 4, 2010. 44 Rachel Herzing and Isaac Antiveros, Making Our Stories Matter, The Storytelling and Organizing Project, In the Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Intimate Violence Within Activist Communities, Ed. Chingan Chen, Jai Dulani, and Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samara Sinha, Brooklyn, South End, 2011, 207-16. 45 Mimi Kim, Alternative Interventions to Intimate Violence, Defining Political and Pragmatic Challenges, in Restorative Justice and Violence Against Women, ed. J. Tachek, New York, Oxford University Press, 2010, 193-217. 46 The four Bay Area organizations include Asian Women's Shelter, a battered women's shelter targeting Asian immigrant and refugee women and children, Shimcha, a Korean domestic violence and sexual assault program that is a project of the Korean Community Center of the East Bay, Narika, a domestic violence advocacy organization serving the South Asian community, and La Clinica de la Raza, a Latino health organization that offers domestic violence services and organizing. Intervention team members include Sudapa Balaji, Leo Broin, Juan Cuba, Rachel Herzing, Isabel Kang, Mimi Kim, and Orchid Pusey. 47 Ruth Bush and Stephen Hooper, Domestic Violence and Restorative Justice Practices, The Risk of a New Panacea, Waikato Law Journal 4, No. 1, 1996, 101-30. 28, How We Learned, Our Learning, Transformative Justice. Adrienne Marais Brown. If I didn't define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. Audrey Lord 48. Finally, we became tired of the slaughter, tired of the taste of each other's shame. It made us sick, you know. First you hunger for the taste of a stranger, then your enemy, then anyone called a leader, then any small difference will do. Your hands become sharp and your words become sharp and the only move available, even with beloveds, is bloodletting. What we called justice back then was the death throes of a worldview, of divine monarchy, manifest destiny, supremacy. It is dying still, but now we have contained the death within ourselves. Inside, in the gardens where we grow our souls, in that soil, we are composting the final strains of this disease.49. When we define ourselves, the result is complexity. We are none of us one thing, neither good nor bad. We are complex surviving organisms. We do appalling things to each other, rooted in trauma. We survive, we learn, we have agency about our next steps. We rise to great kindness, great bravery, rooted in lineage and dream. If you don't trust the people, they become untrustworthy. Lao Tzu, Tao Te Ching 50 We went through the untrustworthy age. It was hundreds and hundreds of years. Not trusting creates good soil for fear, terror. We were terrified of everyone, everything different than us. Our distrust was contagious, palpable. It seemed like everyone died. It seemed like we wept every day. Then we remembered ourselves, 
remembered that trust is not earned, it is how we begin. It is the first thing we do. Learning to trust is returning to beginner's mind, returning to our nature. We are meant to need each other. We honor our ancestors by thriving. Dallas Gold Tooth 51 We realized we didn't know what we were doing, even the experts. We turned to our personal relationships, to our families, our lovers, our closest friends, and we said to each other, I want justice between us. We put down our masks and projections. We began speaking to each other only truth. We found a center within ourselves and began to listen there. We cultivated curiosity. Enough of us were in practice to be able to say the word community and mean it, not aesthetically, not based in shared oppression, but in our visionary practices of justice rooted in love, in connection. We began to question our own actions, our participation in systems designed around our subjugation. We relinquished judgment rooted in superiority. We shook off individual righteousness as a symptom of supremacy thinking. We were not better than each other. We worked together to generate ways forward. We outgrew the survival technology of politeness in the face of injustice, which had gotten us as far as it could get us, the presidency of nations. It could not get us to liberation, so we adapted. Not all of us could be in one place, so we made room, room for many ways of being. We learned to place our attention where we wanted it. When someone acted against community, instead of flooding them with our attention, we pulled collective attention away from them, while a healer would move in and give attention to that someone's root system, supporting wholeness. We learned what forgiveness lets us release, and how to use time to heal that which feels too painful to forgive. We turned to look back at our traumas and understand how they shaped us. We created more room for the traumas of other people, for the weight of ancestral trauma. We practiced deep patience with each other. We created boundaries around our joy, around our love, around our children. Only offers of love could be felt, seen, heard, inhaled, and tasted. We accepted more and more pathways to change as not only legitimate but necessary. You're nobody until you're somebody to a bunch of other somebodies. Jimmy Boggs 52 We surrendered to how deeply we need each other. All of us matter, to ourselves, to each other. 48 Audrey Lord, learning from the 60s, in Sister Outsider, New York, 10 Speed, 1984. 49 Grace Lee Boggs, Time to Grow Our Souls, CH 22, 2011, https colon slash slash www.yesmagazine.org slash blog slash Grace Lee Boggs slash Wisconsin Time to Grow Our Souls. 50 Lao Tzu, Stephen Mitchell's Translation, Tao Te Ching, Trans. Stephen Mitchell, New York, HarperCollins, 1998. 51 Dallas Goldtooth, U.S. Army soldiers massacred hundreds of Lakota relatives at Wounded Knee Creek, Facebook, December 29, 2016, https colon slash slash m.facebook.com slash story.php? Story underscore fit equals 1010613702401143 and it equals 1216853. 52 Grace Lee Boggs, Living for Change, an Autobiography, Minneapolis, University of Minnesota Press, 1998. Acknowledgements. Thank you to the writers, for trusting us with your stories and strategies, for writing hard and giving us the sacred gift of your knowledge. Spirit for guiding this work and holding us, reminding us why we are doing this.
Amira Mizrahi for her vital, skillful support transcribing multiple interviews. Crystal Stone for her formatting support. Charles, Zach, Andrew and the entire AK Press team, for saying yes and helping birth this book into the world. A deep and heartfelt thank you to the generations of Black, Indigenous, Latinx, Asian-slash-Pacific Islander, Arab-slash-North African survivors, organizers, and activists, many of whom are queer and trans, who created and are creating a rich legacy of addressing violence outside of prisons and policing. Thank you whether you're in big cities and small towns, publicly celebrated or unknown, whether you call it transformative justice or not. To the co-editors and authors of The Revolution Starts at Home for their groundbreaking work creating the first anthology of community accountability and transformative justice essays. A. Harris's thank yous. Thank you Leah for asking me to do this, for pushing me when I said no repeatedly, and for seeing me in this type of project in the first place I've learned so much within this project, and from you. Thank you for demystifying the process, holding things down when I was in the midst of holding multiple crises, for shifting your original vision and co-creating a vision for this book with me. Thank you for the coffee, the tinctures, for loving me, and this work, in that order. Thank you for the late-night calls, the book meetings that turned into co-commiseration about our lives. Your fire, brilliance, and perseverance are the foundation of this book. This book, one among your many contributions, has been a joy and a gift. And thank you for holding me down when I wasn't ready or had so so many deeply difficult times during the creation of this book. I am grateful for a process that made so much room for access, grief, our bodies, shared trauma, joy. Thanks mom for your stories of community safety, dad for teaching me to never trust the police, and for the rest of my blood family for the honest questions, hard truths, love and support quiet and loud. Thank you to the Vision Change Win team past and present, especially to Yelini Dream. Taylor Moneyworthy, Crystal Portalatin, Lindsay Charles, and Celine Justice, for holding me down and creating space in our shared work for this book to be possible. Thank you to Ang Hadwin, for pushing me to write my very first article which opens this book, and pushing me to apply to work at the Audrey Lord Project, which started my own transformative justice journey. Thank you to my dear friends, movement comrades, and chosen family, you keep me honest, remind me to drink water make me laugh, and love me so so hard, especially, Vito Bar, My Lee Wong, Evelyn Lin, Adaku Utah, Maura Barely, Ingrid Benedict, Andrea DeRogie, Tiffany James, Shelby Chestnut, Edith Sargon, Kay Barrett, J.J. Renee Long, Disha Narakanya, Holiday Simmons, Amita Swadden, Aisha Shida Simmons, Toshi Regan, Erica Woodland, Brand Fenner, Shira Hassan, Kara Page, Rachel Hersing, Mimi Kim, Sandra Udelman, Henry Serrano, Beverly Corbin, Michael Bell, R.J. McConney, Aura Wise, Wanda Amasuen, Ken Montenegro, Dove Kent, and many many more. Thank you to the current and former members of the Safe OU Side the System Collective at the Audrey Lord Project where I first learned to build work that could hold our safety and survivorship. I'm so grateful for our work of co-creating my first experience of having a political home. Thank you to all the members that co-shaped my entire TJ practice and process. Special thank yous to Tasha Amesqua, Rishon Chisholm, Jai Dulani, Yvonne Fly Anakam Adegain, Ryan Holmes, Sherman Jones, Joseph Reeves, Tahira Pratt, Colleen Thompson, Veronica Torado, and so so many more. 
Thank you to the safe side the System Collective at the Audrey Lord Project, for being my first political home. Thank you to all the members that co-shaped my entire TJ practice and process. Thank you to the organizers within New York City's anti-police violence movement, the transformative justice movement, LGBTQ anti-violence movements, racial justice movements, and economic justice movement. Y'all raised and shaped every move I make. Thank you to every survivor and surviving family member that I had the honor of supporting and collaborating with. Your brilliance, bravery, heart, and heartache inspire me. I strive to do this work in a way that is continually accountable to your sacrifices. I am beyond grateful for the lessons we learned together and the trust you bestowed in me. Leah's thank yous. Thank you, A. Harris, for being the co-editor of My Wildest Dreams, for bringing your wide and deep organizer, writer and facilitator genius to this work. For making me laugh my ass on a regular basis, for our four-hour storytelling phone calls and buying each other flowers as part of the editing process, and the rigor, joy and clear integrity of your work and soul. For telling me to pay for internet on a cross-country flight and to get a damn massage already. I love how the process of sweating this book into being made us closer. You teach me so much and I celebrate your joy and brilliance. Thank you for loving me, yourself and this book. Thank you to my beloved, Jesse Manuel Graves, for your steady love, persistence, brilliance, making me laugh, bringing me coffee sometimes when I'm on another conference call and sticking around. I never take for granted having a partner who cheers me on. The way we build love without abuse as a daily choice and practice has transformed my life and healed my heart. Thank you for being my femme of color love of my life. Thank you to my community of friends and comrades for holding me down, making me laugh and being disabled together with joy and care, Billy Rain, Lisa Amin, Cyrus Marcus Ware, Stacey Milburn Park, Amira Mizrahi, Chanel Gallant, Tina Zavitsanos, Satare Mohammed, Leroy Newbold, Elena Rose, Cyrie Gerald Johnson, Dory Midnight, Jonah Aline Daniel, Kai Cheng Tom, Aaron Ambrose, Neve Camilla Bianco Mazik, Tony Riccardi, Satchel Silvet, Arunat Sara, Max Reynolds, Kim Murray, Elliot Fukui, Vero Vengara, Caitlin Ellers, Carolyn Lazard, Gina Kim, and Lucia Leandro Jimeno. Thank you to my roommates, Riley Joy and Ez Clernet, for being okay with my sitting in my bathrobe at 2 p.m. writing emails at the kitchen table. Thank you to my comrades over the past two decades of community accountability and transformative justice work, from my friends in Toronto in the 1990s who created a safety team before there was a name for it to protect me from a violent ex-partner, to Chingin Chen, Jai Dulani and Sham E. Ali Naeem and all the contributors to the revolution starts at home, all the versions. To my co-workers on the crisis line at the Women's Counseling Referral and Education Center, CREC, in Toronto from 1999 to 2007, who were ahead of the curve in co-creating a feminist of color, queer, trans and working-class lead sexual and partner violence crisis line that was critical of psychiatry and the medical industrial complex and got people therapy for five bucks, along with being my first good, accessible unionized job. To my comrades in Quav's Safety Fist, Toronto's Learning to Action Transformative Justice Study Group, Generation 5, the North American TJ Convening of 2010, API HIA, Fem HeartShare Circle, and everyone who worked on the Allied Media Conference Building and Growing Safer Communities Tracks and Safety Team from 2010 to 2015. To Fem Secret Society, Fems of Color, a transnational solidarity group and sick and disabled queers for being online homes. 
Thank you to my comrades in the disability and healing justice movement and my therapists, Vanessaire Terakali and Tamara Lewis, for the essential support you have provided to me that allows me to do trauma and anti-violence work as a long-term neurodivergent survivor. Finally, thank you the most to the hundreds of people who have trusted me with their stories of abuse, attempts at justice, healing and survival, and held my own. I cherish the ways we have shown up for each other, and honor the ways we failed and made mistakes. Our stories are sacred. Contributor Biographies A. Harris Dixon is an organizer, consultant, and political strategist with 20 years of experience working in racial justice, LGBTQ, anti-violence, transformative justice, and economic justice movements. She is the founding director of Vision Change Win Consulting, www.visionchangewin.com, where she partners with organizations to build their capacity and deepen the impact of their organizing strategies. From 2010 to 2013 A. Harris served as Deputy Director at the New York City Anti-Violence Project where she directed national, statewide, and local organizing, rapid response, education and policy initiatives on hate violence, domestic violence, police violence, and sexual violence. From 2005 to 2010, a. Harris worked as the founding program coordinator of the Safe Outside the System Collective at the Audrey Lord Project where she worked on creating transformative justice strategies to address hate and police violence. Her essay, Building Community Safety, Practical Steps Toward Liberatory Transformation, is featured in the anthology Who Do You Serve, Who Do You Protect? Police Violence and Resistance in the United States. Her writing and analysis have been featured in Truthout, The New York Times, Everyday Feminism, The Huffington Post, Spin Magazine, and CNN. Leah Lakshmi Piepsna Samarasinha is a disability and transformative justice movement worker, writer, poet, and teacher. The Lambda Award-winning author of Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, Tongue Breaker, Bridge of Flowers, Dirty River, Body Map, and other books, and co-editor of The Revolution Starts at Home, Confronting Intimate Violence in Activist Communities, her work has been shortlisted for the Publishing Triangle and Pushcart Prizes. A burger slash Tamil Sri Lankan slash Irish slash Roman non-binary disabled femme raised in Worcester, Massachusetts, she co-founded Toronto's Asian Arts Freedom School and the Kapapak Performance Troupe and Tour Mangoes with Chile. Since 2009 she has been a lead artist with the Disability Justice Performance Collective Sins and Ballad. Her work has been widely anthologized, with recent pieces in Laura Hershey, an American Master, Pleasure Activism, Octavia's Brood, PBS NewsHour, Vice, Yes, Guernica, Poets.org, The Deaf Poets Society, Bitch, Guts, Self, Truth Out, and The Body is Not an Apology. She has a MFA from Mills College and is a Bona Fellow. She is also a Rust Belt poet, a femme over 40, a Sri Lankan with a white mom, an autistic kid who grew up, a survivor who is hard to kill. Amanda Aguilar-Shank is a queer, mixed, Salvadoran mom, organizer, writer, trainer, and abolitionist living in Portland, Oregon. I have a commitment to be free, embracing political education, campaigning, art, healing, community care as modalities for practicing transformation and resilience that starts with the self and extends outwards. I am currently Deputy Director at Freedom to Thrive, a national black and brown network organizing for abolition. The Audrey Lord Project is a lesbian, gay, bisexual, two-spirit, trans, and gender non-conforming people of color center for community organizing, 
focusing on the New York City area. Through mobilization, education, and capacity building, we work for community wellness and progressive social and economic justice. Committed to struggling across differences, we seek to responsibly reflect, represent, and serve our various communities. Blythe Barnow is a white queer femme who was raised working class in Ohio. She is a preacher, harm reductionist, writer, and community organizer. She is the founder of Feminary and works nationally to develop harm reduction resources for faith communities. Blythe graduated from Pacific School of Religion where she received a Master of Divinity and the Paul Wesley Yinger Preaching Award. She served as a survivor advocate for 10 years, was an Everyday Feminism Writing Fellow, and was a Collective Safety Fellow at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. You can learn more at Feminary.com. The Bay Area Transformative Justice Collective, Batik, is a community collective of individuals working to build and support transformative justice responses to child sexual abuse. We are based in Oakland, California. We envision a world where everyday people can intervene in incidences of child sexual abuse in ways that not only meet immediate needs such as stopping current violence, securing safety, and taking accountability for harm, but that also prevent future violence and harm by actively cultivating things such as healing, accountability, and resiliency for all, survivors, bystanders, and those who have abused others. Janae Bonsu is a Chicago-based organizer and researcher from Columbia, South Carolina. She currently serves as national co-director of BIPE 100, a national member-based organization of 18- to 35-year-old black activists and organizers dedicated to creating justice and freedom through a black queer feminist lens. Janae is also a Ph.D. candidate in social work at the University of Illinois Chicago where her research focuses on black women's multidimensional experiences of interpersonal and state violence as it relates to their contact with police. Janae is dedicated to an abolitionist praxis through her organizing and scholarship. Laura Brooks consults, trains, and teaches on accessible and visionary program design, program and system evaluation, harm reduction, and community accountability practices. A longtime Chicago-based youth worker and organizer, Brooks has been a part of projects and organizations that support LGBTQ youth, survivors of violence, and youth experiencing homelessness since 2001. Currently, Brooks is the chief program officer at San Francisco AIDS Foundation. Before joining SPAF, Brooks was a driving force behind the Chicago Youth Storage Initiative, a citywide storage project for youth experiencing homelessness, and worked at Howard Brown Health's Broadway Youth Center between 2005 and 2013. Adrienne Mare Brown is the author of Emergent Strategy and Pleasure Activism, co-editor of Octavius Brood, mediator-slash-facilitator for social justice work focused on black liberation, co-host of the How to Survive the End of the World podcast, and an enthusiastic anti-living in Detroit. Creative Interventions is a resource for community-based interventions to interpersonal violence or what is also referred to as community accountability and transformative justice. Based upon its work from 2004 to 2010, Creative Interventions created Creative Interventions Toolkit, a practical guide to stop interpersonal violence documenting a model, tools, and lessons learned from its interventions to domestic and sexual violence. It also has a website featuring audio and transcripts of everyday stories of people confronting violence from storytelling and organizing project, STOP. See www.creativeinterventions.org and www.stopviolenceeveryday.org for free resources. 
The Fireweed Collective slash the Icarus Project is a support network and education project by and for people who experience the world in ways that are often diagnosed as mental illness. We advance social justice by fostering mutual aid practices that reconnect healing and collective liberation. We transform ourselves through transforming the world around us. Monica Forrester is a two-spirit trans queer woman of color. Working and advocating for the decriminalization of sex work. Currently Program Manager of Maggie's Toronto Sex Work Action Project. Founder of Trans Pride Toronto to bring inclusion equality and awareness of trans non-binary issues. Chanel Gallant is a transformative organizer, writer, and trainer with a focus on sex and justice. She is a member of the National Leadership Team for Showing Up for Racial Justice, SURJ, and co-founded the Migrant Sex Workers Project and the First Surge Chapter in Canada. She has published and presented widely on sex and or social and economic justice. She is working on her first book, A Theory of Sexual Labor. Founded nearly 15 years ago, the Georgia Latino Alliance for Human Rights, GLAR, is a nonprofit, community-based organization that educates, organizes, and empowers Latino immigrants across Georgia to defend and advance their civil and human rights. Established in 2001 by Adelina Nichols and Theodoro Maus, former Mexican Consul General in Atlanta, GLAR developed out of the Coordinating Council of Latino Community Members, an organization that supported the right of undocumented immigrants to obtain driver's licenses. Today, GLAR has become the largest Latino grassroots organization in Georgia as a result of its efforts to organize Latinos to defend and campaign for their rights and human dignity. Alexis Pauline Gums is working to become your favorite cousin. She is the author of Spill, Scenes of Black Feminist Fugitivity, M. Archive, After the End of the World, and co-editor of Revolutionary Mothering, Love on the Front Lines. She is a founding member of Ubuntu A Women of Color Survivor-Led Coalition to End Gendered Violence and Create Sustainable Transformative Love that rose up in the aftermath of the Duke Lacrosse case. She is also a member of Spirit House, a black women-led arts-based abolitionist tribe, which also facilitates the Durham Harm-Free Zone. Stacey K. Haynes is the founder of Generative Somatics, and committed the interdependence of personal, community, and systemic transformation. Stacy integrates her extensive experience in somatics, social change, and healing trauma into this powerful work, www.generativesomatics.org. Stacy also founded Generation 5, whose mission is to end the sexual abuse of children within five generations, through survivor leadership, community organizing, and transformative justice, www.generation5.org. Stacy is the author of Healing Sex, a mind-body approach to healing sexual trauma and the DVD Healing Sex. She is also the author of The Politics of Trauma, Somatics, Healing and Social Justice, Fall 2019. Shira Hassan is the former executive director of the Young Women's Empowerment Project, a movement-building project led by and for young people of color that have current or former experience in the sex trade and street economies. A lifelong harm reductionist and prison abolitionist, Shira has been working on community accountability for nearly 25 years and has helped young people of color start their own organizing projects across the country. She is the founder and principal consultant for Just Practice, a capacity-building project for those working at the intersection of transformative justice, harm reduction, and collective liberation. Shira's work has been discussed on national public radio, The New York Times, The Nation, In These Times, Bill Moyers, Scarletine, Everyday Feminism, Bitch Media, Truthout, and Collarlines. 
Audrey Huntley is a filmmaker and the co-founder of the Toronto-based network No More Silence, which works to honor MUG2S and support community efforts to end violence, land reclamation, and defense while asserting sovereignty. In her day job she is the victim rights paralegal at Aboriginal Legal Services. She is an army brat of mixed European and indigenous ancestry. She grew up in Calgary, Alberta and moved to Europe as a young adult where she got involved in the autonomous movement, anti-fascist and anti-racist political organizing. She visited Palestine as part of a delegation of women from Germany during the first intifada and co-wrote a collection of stories upon the group's return. She has been back on Turtle Island since 1998, living and organizing with indigenous women in Vancouver's downtown east side in Toronto, where she resides with her street dog rescue, Kime. Miriam Kaba is an organizer, educator, and curator who is active in movements for racial, gender, and transformative justice. She is the founder and director of Project NIA, a grassroots organization with a vision to end youth incarceration. Miriam is also a co-organizer of the Just Practice Collaborative, a training and mentoring group focused on sustaining a community of practitioners that provide community-based accountability and support structures for all parties involved with incidents and patterns of sexual, domestic, relationship, and intimate community violence. Mimi E. Kim is the founder of Creative Interventions and a co-founder of Insight. She has been a long-time activist and advocate challenging gender-based violence at its intersection with state violence. As a second-generation Korean-American, she locates her political work in global solidarity with feminist anti-imperialist struggles, seeking not only the end of oppression but the creation of liberation here and now. Mimi is also an assistant professor of social work at California State University, Long Beach. Eileen Lam holds a Master of Law, Human Rights, Bachelor of Law, Master of Social Work and Bachelor of Social Work. She is the founder and executive director of Butterfly, Asian and Migrant Sex Workers Support Network, and co-founder of Migrant Sex Workers Project. She has been involved in the sex work, gender, migrant, and labor movement for almost 20 years. She has provided trainings for community members, services providers, and policy markers on sex work, migration, anti-oppression practice, and human rights in different countries. She also participated the meeting of the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, CEDAW, of the United Nations in Geneva to advocate for the rights and safety of migrant sex workers. Raquel Lavina has over 30 years of experience in activism and organizing. As an organizer she focused on helping to build youth organizing as a discipline within a broader community organizing field. She served as the National Program Director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, supervising 20 staff in three cities, the Executive Director of the Youth Empowerment Center, which housed five youth groups in Oakland, California including Seoul, the School of Unity and Liberation, and as the Deputy Director of Social Justice Leadership, which supported groups in integrating analysis, organizing, and personal transformation. She is now Deputy Director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, with a focus on leadership development and organizational sustainability, where she's honored to contribute her skills and experience to a movement that centers dignity and justice. Elizabeth Long is a community organizer, educator, and facilitator rooted in anti-carceral feminism and focused on transformative justice, prison abolition, and racial justice. She has spent the last decade working at various points within the anti-violence-slash-anti-criminalization Venn diagram, and her heart and political home lie in the overlap. Adrian Lowe has organized for the past three decades in movements for queer civil rights, 
economic justice, prison abolition and health justice. Chris Limbertos was born and raised in Iran, from Syrian and Armenian parents. She lives deeply in the contradictions of an exiled identity and made a commitment to transform the lives and conditions of her family, community, and peoples. She is a leader member of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, AROC, and has spent the last 25-plus years working with organizations and efforts committed to the liberation of people impacted by racism, homophobia, xenophobia, capitalism, and imperialism. She has trained in embodied transformation through generative somatics. Gs, since 2008, is a trainer-slash-teacher for Gs and as much as possible, integrates what she learns into her life and movement work. When not working, she looks for ways to get friends and family to join and share in being outside in beauty and adventure with good food. RJ McConney's work brings together three complementary passions, transformative justice, somatic coaching, and the creative arts. He is a parent, a lead teacher and board member of Generative Somatics, and Assistant Director of Intervention for Common Justice in Brooklyn, a groundbreaking restorative justice organization. RJ served on the leadership team of Generation 5 and co-founded the Challenging Male Supremacy Project. He also co-led the Foundry Theater, worked as an associate producer and story advisor on the documentary film Slingshot Hip Hop, and was a participant performer in Ping Chong and Company's oral history theater work and documentary film Secret Survivors. Mihente is a new national hub for Latinx and Chicanx organizing. Using a hybrid offline and online platform, we're creating a political home that brings together leadership, advocacy, culture, and media to spark the culture and policy change we need. Oakland Power Projects, OPP, works to shift resources through building skills, knowledge, and access. Its demands scale up from personal practice, to community practice and priorities and beyond, by challenging common-sense prioritization of the cops through imagining and creating solutions based in building people's capacities and desires for well-being. OPP is a project of Critical Resistance Oakland, an organization working to abolish the prison industrial complex. This chapter was produced by the CR Oakland Anti-Policing Working Group and the OPP Health Workers Cohort, a group of volunteer health workers from a range of fields, backgrounds, and types of expertise. Jenna Peters-Golden is a queer, white, anti-Zionist Jew living in Philadelphia. They have been doing transformative justice and anti-violence work since 2007, and offering social justice facilitation and organizational planning with Aorta since 2010. When Jenna isn't in meetings and working on projects, she loves living collectively, drawing comics, cooking up meals and plans, and adventuring with her dog, her little wonder child, her partner, and friends. Philly stands up as a queer, multiracial collective committed to ending violence and abolishing prisons. From 2005 to 2016, PSU facilitated accountability processes for people who perpetrated violence. In addition, PSU taught community-based workshops and helped convene transformative justice organizers across borders. Today, Philly stands up remains a network of activists dedicated to transformative justice. The Puente Human Rights Movement is a grassroots migrant justice organization based in Phoenix, Arizona. We develop, educate, and empower migrant communities to protect and defend our families and ourselves. Nathan Shara is a queer South Asian trauma therapist and educator who is committed to transformative justice as a spiritual path. Politicized through queer, feminist, and racial justice organizing, 
He has spent the last decade in collective experiments with liberatory responses to intimate and community violence. Nathan maintains a small private practice in Oakland, California, applying TJ principles through his one-to-one work with survivors of violence and with people who have caused harm. Nathan is a lead teacher and practitioner with generative somatics, building capacity within our organizations and communities to heal, transform, and win. Amita E. Swadden is an organizer, educator, storyteller, and strategist working to end interpersonal and institutional violence against young people. Their work stems from their experiences as a non-binary, femme, queer woman of color, daughter of immigrants from India, and years of childhood abuse by their parents, including eight years of rape by their father. They are the founding director of Mirror Memoirs, a national storytelling and organizing project uplifting the narratives, healing and leadership of queer, transgender, non-binary, and intersex people of color who survived child sexual abuse, as a strategy to end rape culture and other forms of oppression. Kai Cheng Tom is a writer, performer, healer, lasagna lover, and wicked witch. She is the author of three award-winning books as well as many articles and essays. She would love to live by the sea again, someday. Trans Lifeline was founded in 2014 to connect trans people to the community, resources, and support they need to survive and thrive, building a resilient trans community through trans-led direct services. Trans Lifeline's hotline is there to care for trans people through moments of crisis and suicidality. Their Microgrants program provides low-barrier grants to trans people in need of legal name changes and updated government IDs, as well as specialized support for trans people who are incarcerated or undocumented. By providing care, Trans Lifeline identifies the trans community's most pressing needs and brings that expertise to the broader LGBT equality movement. Elenkai Tamil Blood, Texas Bread, and Brooklyn Brood, Yalini Dream conjures spirit through a unique blend of poetry, theater, song, and dance, reshaping reality and seeking peace through justice in lands of earth, psyche, soul, and dream. Yalini Dream has 20 years' experience using artistic tools for healing, organizing, and dignity with communities contending with violence and oppression. Yalini is a consultant with Vision Change Win, a wellness specialist with M Arts, tours with hip-hop storytelling group Brooklyn Dreamwolf, and teaches social justice pedagogy and the arts at University of San Francisco's graduate program in human rights and international multicultural education.